Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. I'm sending the most huge and heartfelt thank you to everyone who's been reading my new book, Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. It's available from all bookshops. If you've been trying to get it from Waterstones, I know they've just got some more copies in. And if you'd like a signed copy, the Big Green Bookshop, Book Bar, the Seven Oaks Bookshop and the Margate Bookshop are your friends and they all deliver nationwide. If you'd like some safe and socially distant real-life book chat, I'm going to be at the Bath Festival on Friday, May the 21st with Caleb Azuma-Nelson and the EA Festival at Hedgingham Castle with Rowan Pelling on the 1st of August. Tickets are available online. Now, on to today's guest. Since his first book, StarQuest, came out in 1968, Dean Koontz has published over 105 novels. He pretty much redefines the word prolific, and his latest, The Other Emily, is so terrifying it's impossible to set aside. We talked about the fact that Dean still struggles with creative panic and imposter syndrome, in spite of the fact that he's had to redesign his house in order to accommodate the 6,000 editions of his own work – He also talked about growing up an abusive, alcoholic father and how he found solace in reading and writing, how he used to save $5 a week in his first job as a teacher and then binge on 50 cent paperbacks. And he talks about being very moved by the new Kazuo Ishiguro novel. As you'll hear, we had a few technical issues, so unfortunately the sound isn't perfect. We hope it doesn't spoil your enjoyment. I wanted to ask lately... Which book in the last maybe year or so have you found yourself completely absorbed by? What book have you really you found to be such a page turner that you've resented being away from it? I have been, well, it's been a strange year, as we all know, and I have had more deadlines. So my reading time was really restricted. And then I've gotten a copy of Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishikuro. And I thought, well, I'll just sample this for a few pages. And the next thing I knew, I was halfway through. So that was, in, in the most interesting way, an unputdownable book for me. I thought it was quite glorious. Are you a, a fan of uh, Kazuo? Um, I know I'm really interested in the way that he talks about technology and AI and all these very new things with a real human and emotional truth behind them. Clara and the Sun is. Uh, is a deeply moving book and terribly sad at the end. 
uh, and really not very complimentary about human beings. <laughs> what I found very interesting also is, you know, you get reviewed. I've been fortunate to be largely well-reviewed uh, in the U.S., and, uh, but you always have some negativity and you always have some reviews that don't get it. Some reviews may be justified in not liking it, but others simply don't get it. I've been kind of amazed that somebody whose books are so anxiously awaited should have had a couple of reviews I read here that completely didn't get it. Uh, and I, I wonder what that's like for somebody like him. I suppose it rolls off his back just like anybody else. Uh, and these were reviews that didn't necessarily dislike it, simply didn't get it. Uh, and I thought that was kind of strange since he's eminently underscored uh, and, and quite, uh, quite fascinating. It makes you think twice about the very idea of uh, going forward with artificial intelligence and what responsibility might fall on us. It's such a fascinating area, isn't it? I think there are two things there. The what we what we mean when we talk about um you know artificial intelligence and the role it has in the human world, but also that as you say, I'm so curious that a writer at that point in their career, whether it does roll off his back. I mean, does it roll off your back? Uh you know, when you're younger, it's it's one thing I say to young writers, do not take reviews seriously. Uh, if you take the praise seriously, you're also going to find yourself taking the attacks seriously, and it can damage you either way. Uh, I won't mention the name, he's no longer with us, but there was a, an American suspense novelist whom I read back in the day when a hardcover cost $4.95, if you can believe that, and I was a great fan of his. His work was distinct, his voice was unique. Uh, he was just, altogether he had it all working. But for many, many years, nobody really tumbled to that. He was understood by certain people in the suspense community, but not in a larger sense. And then when he was well into his 50s, he was suddenly discovered by literati and something terrible happened. Uh, he was somebody who had it all, but the reviews emphasized two fundamental issues. And I began to see that as the years advanced, he emphasized those two things over all else. And what was unique about his work started fading. Uh, so you do have to, you have to say thank you very much when it's good and to hell with you when it's not and, uh, and just move on uh, because it's corrupting no matter whether it's praise or pretend. And you, you just have to sort of understand you're doing this for yourself. It, that's what you started out doing. Uh, also, you're doing it for those people who may be like-minded and uh, with whom you wish to communicate. And that's what it's about. I understand that you have written, you know, at the beginning, certainly, you know, under many names in many, many genres. Do you feel that that, has, that gave you freedom, that, that beginning, that you, you can say what you want to say to the people you want to say it to? Yes, but if you had been there, you'd be amazed at what a battle it was. Uh, it was a battle on several fronts. One, if I wrote one novel that was of a type, then I was expected by American publishers to write every novel thereafter of the same type. Uh, I wrote a comic novel that was well-reviewed but didn't sell. And so I thought, well, maybe comic novels aren't the thing I should be working on because I do need to make a living. 
but there was a lot of pressure then to do more comic novels. Then when I did a novel that had that sort of caper element, pressure was to do nothing but caper novels. I couldn't do it. I had to do what I, as a reader, most enjoyed. And I read everything. I read every genre. Literary fiction to me is another genre. I read everything. And I like to write within whatever strikes me. So when I started actually combining genres, then I ran into another wall. Over here, I've been credited with creating the cross-genre novel. I don't know if I did, but I'll tell you, when I started doing it, nobody I worked with had ever seen it. And they would say, you can't put Gentlemen of the Fantastic into a suspense novel, or you can't put a love story into this novel that has this other element. And I never understood why not. I thought that was really had grown up from the compartmentalization of fiction that took place with the mass market paperback, where in order to satisfy different audiences, they created different lines of fiction. And I think if you go back to the 40s and 30s, you saw writers willing to leap across genres. And you didn't see that after you got into the 50s and 60s. But I started doing it and it was, uh, it was greatly satisfying, if for a couple of decades, very difficult to get what I was after. Never thought about that before the timing of things. I was thinking about, say, a writer like Daphne du Maurier, who, you know, you sort of think of kind of the, the sweeping love story, I guess, and the tragedy, but also so comic. You know, there's the suspense, there's also the, the dystopia. Were there any books that you read growing up that really made you aware of just what a novel could do and where a story could take you that made you think, gosh, there's so much that is possible on the page? The very first novel that absolutely captivated me was The Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. And, and I look back, I, it was many, many years, probably 30 years after I'd read it as a child that I thought, I bet I won't find this compelling now. But I did. I read it again, and it was the same magic in the story. But as an adult, I could understand exactly why it captivated me. And I think reading The Wind in the Willows began to cement my sense. I was already ready, writing little stories on tablet paper and drawing covers and peddling them to relatives for a nickel as booklets. Uh, I was my own publisher, editor, agent, uh, author, uh, copy editor, uh, artist. And uh, I think that was in my blood very early, but it was with Wind in the Willows that I think I got to the point saying, hmm. and I was reading much more heavily after. I love that book so much because it really makes me aware of how the characters carry a story that, and I think, you know, as you did, I, I loved it as a child and didn't think too much about why I loved it. It was just a world I wanted to be in. And then realizing that, in a way, it almost doesn't matter. Of course, it matters what happens to the people in your book, but you need to care about what happens to them. And that's what makes you stay with them. I have said many times that what matters, of course, uh, you want a story that goes somewhere, uh, mostly. Uh, you know, it can be a very subtle story. It can be a very melodramatic one, if you want. Uh, but we want a story. But no story works as it ought to uh, if the characters aren't well-developed and they aren't people we care about. Uh, and it doesn't mean they all have to be Pollyanna-ish kind of characters uh, with no faults, just the opposite. Uh, they could be characters with wrenching problems. Another problem I had, not to dwell on what problems I had, 
But a problem early on in my US publishing was when I started introducing humor into the novels that they thought of as meaning largely to be suspense novels. And I was told again and again, you can't do this. People won't be on the edge of their seat. And I said, if they like the characters, if the characters are people they care about, they'll actually like them and care about them more if they can laugh with them. Because that's how in real life we deal with the problem. Humor is the greatest release from tension that we have. So it's sort of unnatural for me to write fiction Oh, I've written a few novels like Intensity and others that have no place for it. But for the most part, I almost have to have the momentum. Because that's being alive, isn't it? That's how we as humans function and survive is we, we find the funny. Do you have any favourite comic novels, whether they're written and marketed as comic novels or just books that you found very, very funny? The man who was best at it repeatedly was Donald Westlake. Uh, he was... Uh, you know, he misfired, we all did. But he wrote many, many very funny novels. And uh, I, I loved those. And there was a writer that almost nobody knows of anymore called James Kirkwood. Uh, wrote a novel called There Must Be a Pony uh, and a number of others. And uh, very, very funny novels. Uh, a publisher told me early on, straight comic novels never last. And there may be some truth about that because I've noticed that a number of uh, very comic novels don't seem to last a long time. There's a novel that's not merely comic, but does one of the best jobs of displaying where writers can go wrong. Uh, it's a book by William Goldman, the screenwriter, uh, who wrote Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid and All the President's Men and many of your successful films. He was a terrific novelist also. He wrote The Marathon Man and a lot of other things. But he wrote a book called The Color of Light and it's an amazing book about a writer who makes the fundamental error of, of a university-trained writer who takes a certain kind of advice too literally. And that piece of advice is only write about what you know. And he misunderstands that to mean you have to live it. And as a consequence, he destroys his whole life in the course of this book by doing exactly that. And it's very funny and also extremely dark and I keep recommending it sadly to say it seems to be out of print now. Maybe your influence will bring it back. I have um, barely read any Goldman. I think I've read bits of Adventures in the Screen Trade and looking to see if it's behind me but um, that sounds excellent and I was thinking about how as a, I'm, I'm a writer and I love books about writing and publishing and anything that is quite satirical about the industry and some industries don't really lend themselves to that so much but I think there are some and maybe writing is one where even people who don't necessarily write a whole book in their life they can they can dream and they can imagine and that's enough of an entry point I wonder if we're thinking about you know the world of writing is accessible for a reader in a way that maybe I don't know the world of plumbing or the world of real estate <laughs> isn't so much well I I haven't ever thought about that, but now that you mention it, I think you're absolutely correct because as sad as it is, because it's not true and it's self-delusion, everybody thinks they're a writer. I've never met anyone that doesn't think they are. Uh, everybody thinks they have a novel in them or a 
or a fabulous uh, memoir. Uh, and so you may be right. That's why if you have a character who is a writer or you're setting it within that world, uh, it's very accessible to me. Uh, I just did it with the other Emily on the novel. I did say to somebody sort of in a self-deprecating way, I've got to admit there's one reason I now and then use a writer. It's because you have a story that requires the character to be very busily trying to understand what's happening to him in his life. And if he had a job other than self-employment, he wouldn't be able to function in the storyline. So as a novelist, he can put aside the book he's working on and go on this adventure. And that allows you to get something done that, let's say if he was an engineer, he couldn't because Bridgie was working on the that's a really good point like in children's books and the necessity of getting rid of their parents one way or another <laughs> in order to allow them to have an adventure um i was thinking of that uh you reminded me of um eve babbitt's gosh i think it's i can't remember which novel it is but i think it might be sex and rage and also it's ask the dust by john fante and i think i'm right in the fact that they're both maybe california books but also, their books about writers who, the minute they get a check, they rush out to the liquor store with it. <laughs> I understand you're in, in California. Do you have any books that you love about the West Coast? You know, I, I write largely set in California or the Southwest. Uh, there's, uh, well, I've lived here since 1976, so I'm a native. Uh, if you've lived here that long, you're a native. I, I loved it. It's deteriorating. Uh, California isn't what it used to be. I'm starting to feel when I write about it, like John D. McDonald writing about Florida when it started to turn from a sort of paradise into something less. Uh, but I, I love California, nevertheless. I write about it because I know it uh, and I know the Southwest. And so when I'm writing about Arizona, New Mexico, California, or even Oregon, I don't have to research the place. And I do so much research anyway that uh, I, if I can save myself researching the place, it saves a lot of time and keeps me on deadline. Uh, I, I don't tend to be gravitating toward books just because they're written in California. In fact, maybe less so because uh, I'm interested in places I've never been. Uh, Ishiguro's books, especially if they're set in Japan or England, uh, I find that interesting simply because I'm picking up a culture that I know less about. Are there any books that you have been drawn to, either books you've books you've read or books that you'd like to read after this mad year where no one could go anywhere or do any traveling? Which books will, you know, not books that you'll take on vacation, but which books do you think will take you on vacation? I've been reading so much for research that I've been reading less fiction. Uh, and I've got to get back into it. And generally the way I get back into it is rereading things I particularly love. Uh, Tale of Two Cities, one of my favorite novels. Uh, there's a novelist for young adults. Uh, she's very popular here. I don't know about there. Kate DiCamillo, The Tale of Desperado. And I just adore her books. They're for young adults, but they are absolutely for adults as well. She's one of those writers who knows how to write for all ages and give different experiences. So I think I'll go back and reread a couple of hers that I particularly love and get myself back into that magic fiction once 
and not on deadlines. That does sound intense. I've not read that, but I'd love to. Where should I start? I would start with The Miraculous Journey of Edward Germain, which is about a, a China rabbit that actually thinks and has a life. But of course, one thing they do in, when toys come alive in kids' books, they move, they do all this stuff. The very funny thing and, and almost tragic thing about Edward Germain is He's this China doll that can't move, but he thinks and he loves his child and he gets passed from hand to hand and he goes on adventures, but he's always perfectly still. It's the most amazing story and it's deeply moving uh, in the strangest way. And I think it's a great place to start uh, with her. And then there's a book called The Magician's Elephant, which is very slim, but absolutely miraculous. And uh, I think if you started with those two, with you you have to read everything she well thank you so much that sounds like a fabulous introduction and i love a, a slim book i love that i nothing that's sort of too daunting i'm currently right in the middle of a biography of susan sontag and i knew very little about her and i'm finding it really compelling and it's very interesting about the the 60s and about the social history but i am starting to feel as though i have read it i am reading it and i will be reading it <laughs> Are you, do you finish every every book you start or do you ever have to walk away and move on? You know, when I was, uh, my wife and I were first married and I was teaching school but writing on the side. And then when I was writing, uh, we didn't have a television for 10 years. We didn't want one. First, when we were married, we couldn't afford one. And then we didn't want one. So we read about 200 books a year each because we had so much time. And... Uh, in those days, if I started a book, I absolutely insisted on finishing it, no matter how much I despised it. It was like, okay, this cost me this much money. I must get my money's worth. I must read it. But by the time I hit my 30s, I said, you know what? If I get about 25% into a book and it doesn't have me, it's never going to have me. So it goes on to a while. Now, until very recently, I couldn't give those books away. I still felt that I purchased it. I had to keep it. The day might come when I looked at it with fresh eyes. And, and then I did that a number of times and it's still the same. So last year when we moved, I got rid of literally a couple of thousand books and I felt no pain about doing so. Which are... Do you and your wife um, read the same things? Do you share books? Do you recommend books to each other? And are there any books that you disagreed over? Pretty much read the same things. We drift a little. Uh, she's not as much interested in the science reading I do, which I enjoy as much as the, the uh, fiction. I read a lot of quantum mechanics, biology, molecular biology, or areas I've been interested in. I've got a lot of ideas for stories out of them. Not that I'm reading and there comes an idea. It's I'm working on a story and I suddenly realize that element I read in a novel with Barry and I have a nonfiction piece is going to be part of this story. But otherwise, we tend to gravitate toward the same thing. And it's, it's interesting to keep a list of the books you write and where you go over time. And some things, some taste, some of your taste never changes and some of it changes rather dramatically. Uh, and that really is, depends on the author. Uh, it comes back to the thing when I had to argue with uh, publishers about, they would say, this book will destroy your career. This is early on when it was hitting the bestseller list. They were saying, well, if you publish this book, it'll destroy your career. And I, I couldn't understand that at all. And they would say, 
because it's so different. And I would say to them, readers don't necessarily always want precisely the same book from the other. What they're actually buying is not the same story or type of story. They're buying the author's voice and his view of the world. And if the story is very different, but that remains, then they're going to like it just as much. And I think over time, that's been proven to be true. Uh, so what we read as both of us have gotten older has changed somewhat, but some writers never fall out of favor with us. And, and uh, sometimes we go for the very large fat historical sort of things and then other times something slimmer like you. Uh, life is very hectic these days. So committing yourself to an 800 page novel is a bit harder. And it used to be. I agree. And I never want to resent a book. I think that there are so many people who want to read and feel excluded from it. It feels like the adult homework that, you know, was sort of the tyranny of their life when they were a teenager. And I do believe really passionately that reading is one of the, it, it does more for us than we ever have to bring to it. It's so nourishing. And when everything around us is quite draining and quite intense, it's really, really restorative. And I believe that it's good to stretch and challenge yourself, but equally to get that restoration and, and build the habit. You know, you could be reading Dickens, you could be reading, you know, The Russian Greats, you could be reading Sweet Valley High. If you're getting something out of it, that's all that matters. It is uh, entirely correct. And, uh, and of course, I was a kid in a house that didn't have books. Uh, in fact, books were considered a waste of time. We were very poor. Uh, I was always being lectured, why are you reading? You need to learn how to repair an automobile. And I was said, well, I'll never be able to learn that. I have no facility for that. But yes, but everybody in our family can repair their automobiles. And you'll have to too, because you'll never be able to afford to take it to a mechanic. And I said, well, then I'm just going to have to succeed enough to take it to a mechanic. But I'm going to read rather than learn to fix the car. Uh, not only did that give me escape from a very unpleasant household, but it taught me how to live. I think novels, books, good nonfiction, just as fiction can teach you how to live. Uh, it isn't that you're sitting there taking a lesson, you absorb it subconsciously. And perfect example is a child in a dysfunctional house with a violent alcoholic father. Until you know that every family isn't this way, you think that every family is. You have no other example. Then you get into novels and you start reading and it slowly occurs to you that there is a different way to live and there are many different ways to live. And many, many of them are better than this that I'm going through now. That is an invaluable thing for, for a writer to bring to a reader. And there's many invaluable things that writers can bring to readers without ever being on a soapbox course, that will destroy the whole experience. Books can bring you other lives than the one you live. It's a mix of empathy and hope, isn't it? And I'm I'm so sorry that you had such a a difficult and painful experience growing up, but so glad that you found the ladder you needed to to survive, that you were able to make all of that space in your brain and your imagination by finding these other worlds. I was curious, I don't know if you can remember this, but I'm wondering about the first time you remember being let loose in a bookstore and having money to spend and how you felt and what you chose. Well, that was as an adult. My first real full-time job teaching school, I would put aside uh, $5 a week 
by paper facts. And that was a glorious experience. Paper facts in those days were 50 cents, 60 cents. So $5 could buy quite a lot of reading. And uh, I would spend hours prowling the aisles of the bookstore just to find how best to spend those $5. And uh, it, it was exhilarating experience. It's one of the things actually I kind of sometimes get nostalgic about. Once you're financially secure, it isn't quite the same going into a bookstore. You could go in, buy anything you want, and it doesn't really matter so much. Therefore, a little bit of the excitement is gone from going into a bookstore. And, however, I'm not going to go back to be poor just to get that excitement. So what were you looking for? Was there anything, I don't know if you kept much of a record of sort of, of what, you were, what you were buying. Were there any readers that you discovered and would keep trying to find more of in those days? When I was, when I was a child and started reading around eight or nine, by the time I was 12, I had read everything in our local library for young readers. In those days, they divided everything by young readers and adult readers. The adult readers didn't mean it was racy. There might have been, Peyton Place might have been in there, but also Herman Woke and all these other writers. Um, and you weren't allowed in the adult section until you were 16. But when I was 12, I'd read everything in the young adults or the young reader section. And the librarian said, well, I'm going to make an exception of a few and let you into the adult section. And then I started plowing through writers like Herman Wolf and all that. But what I read, uh, much to the exclusion of almost everything else, was science fiction, because it really captured that adolescent uh, excitement. And uh, Robert Heinlein, Ray Bradbury, Arthur C. Clarke, um, Theodore Sturgeon, I read all of that. So when I started writing, that's what I was writing because I'd read that to such an extent. And then I realized this isn't really where my talent lies. It isn't where my greatest interest lies. I'm writing it because I've read so much of it and I'll never write it at the highest level. So I stopped writing it and repurchased from publishers all the science fiction novels I've done. And because I knew if I didn't, they would be out there in print forever or they would bring them back and I would always be identified, quote unquote, science fiction writer. Uh, so early days in a bookstore when I was buying, I bought a lot of that. And Heinlein had a, I look at Heinlein now and it feels, a lot of it feels very dated. Some of it not, that, that is a danger of science fiction because you know they don't foresee things like cell phones and other, or on alien worlds and store communications are similar to what they were in the 50s. Uh, so some of that just, uh, and, and attitudes change, and that doesn't hold up as well. Uh, but in those days, if I could find a Heinlein, then I was very excited. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June too is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss we'll be back to Dean soon but now it's time for my steal of the week domestic bliss and other disasters by jane irons published by blue moose press i judged this book by its cover and i'm so glad i did This novel feels like the spiritual contemporary air of books by my beloved barbara trapedo and laurie colwyn Wickedly waspish, adorably cosy, but never cloying. Our heroine rejoices in the name Sally Forth, and she's waiting for her grown-up children to leave home so the next stage of her life can begin. That life does not include, say, her son returning home, building a fort out of recycled materials in the back garden and shacking up with an eco-warrior aristocrat in disguise, or her son's ex-girlfriend moving in and declaring herself unofficially adopted, or guiding her best friend through an intensely physical affair with a much younger man, conducted on a vast surplus of felting materials, or Sally's husband almost becoming Prime Minister. This is published by Blue Moose Press, an independent publisher I truly adore. Sally is a joy and a tonic and you need to meet her. Now, back to Dean. Something that really captivates me and intrigues me, the sort of recent social history of science fiction, all of those ideas. And I guess, you know, the sort of anything being published in maybe the 50s, 60s, 70s, that was drawing on the 30s and 40s. But as you say, because it's people using that space to explore ideas that were then contemporary, it does date. And I've always thought that the aesthetics of it are interesting. Um, Have you ever... I was thinking about the idea that contemporary fiction that is maybe science fiction in disguise, anything that you've read that you've thought is perhaps, oh, this is someone who wants to write science fiction and and this is how they are cleverly going about it. Because I know, you know, unfairly, I do know what you mean that apart from writers like Asimov, it's interesting how publishers use that as a very limiting genre when it's really about, you know, the world and the universe and everything. Uh, yeah, it's, well, look at David Mitchell. Uh, there's somebody who sneaks in uh, more than just science fiction, sneaks in a lot of things uh, that would limit him. And I'm always sort of fascinated when somebody is able to do that but not get limited by it. I think it's strange. I could be entirely wrong about this, but it seems to me that contemporary science fiction has begun to limit itself in ways that will make it dated in a completely different way. 
uh, it's all become about nothing but social issues or a lot of details. And, you know, social issues are fine, but they change. And what doesn't change is the human condition. Theories of human behavior, uh, theories of how we'll have utopia on Earth, they come and go. Uh, and the human condition remains the same. So you want to avoid, I, I think you want to avoid, if you're writing science fiction, now I'm not a science fiction writer, so I shouldn't be giving instruction. But if you want to write it, that it's going to be read 50 years later, try to try to think outside the box on the technology, but also to don't become so completely enthralled by current social issues that that becomes a dominant part of the novel, because it will not be in 20 or 30 years. I know it's hard to think that way uh, because we get so captivated by the movements of the time, but they only are the movements of the time. I think of so many American writers of the 30s began to write what were really boring novels that had a Stalinist side to them. That looks pretty terrible now. Uh, and so I, I just, I don't go that way. I, I think the human condition is so problematic, so potentially glorious, that there's so much to write about it without letting contemporary issues become the center of the piece uh, that we'll never run out of stories anyway. Also on, on that front, uh, when you're writing about those, those larger, more interesting and enduring things about the human condition, uh, the stories become more identifiable to a broader spectrum of readers. Uh, because no matter what you believe politically or what you believe socially, you're still living as a human being in a human society. And the problems for all of us are almost precisely the same. The fundamental problems, life and death and sickness and, and uh, finding our way to love and the rest of it. Uh, so if you're, if you're focused on that, uh, I think there's a chance something will last. But let's get real. Uh, in all of human history, what percentage of everything written has ever lasted? It's a very, very tiny percentage. So you always have to work with a certain humility about it. But really what you're doing can be as probably is as ephemeral as the life of a butterfly. And again, I think we're back to Mole and Toad and Ratty that, that you know, because those those animals are living with so many human foibles and their experience of life, as we know, it's so very human that that we can forever, you know, relate to amphibians in a way that we can't always. If something's written, as you say, a very specific time frame. Uh, you mentioned David Mitchell, and I was curious about whether there are any of his novels that you found particularly resonant. Of the bone clocks, I find him fascinating. Works completely outside the box. He's somebody I admire very much, but he seems to just plow forward. And that's what, that's my primary advice to young writers actually when they ask me uh, about different things. Uh, and, you know, young writers ask us older writers for advice and then they never take it. Or they, uh, they tend to think, well, he doesn't know, uh, everything has changed. Uh, but one piece of advice I would always give them is, uh, and you see this in what David Mitchell has done with his career. You persevere. Once you have a vision, you have to believe in it and you have to stay with it. Uh, or otherwise, uh, what's the point of doing this? Uh, don't scope the market and look for what is wanted. 
Just write what you're passionate about writing at that time, and everything else will take care of itself. But you will have to persevere because there'll be a resistance in the publishing community, uh, the way the public receives it. But for almost all of us, there will be some sliver of public that likes what we do and will keep liking it. Uh, and you just have to not back away. I definitely think that we forget it's I, all the other writers are just, oh, I love writing so much. Look, there's another 10,000 words, just like that. And actually <laughs> being in your head and being by yourself, it's it's so hard. And I'm not going to say it's never been harder because my goodness, when I think about the different writers and the points in history at which they've, they've worked and which they've persevered. But I did also see someone on Twitter saying something like, if James Joyce had done all of his writing on the machine that he used to access pornography, he would not have written a word. <laughs> uh, there may be truth in that. Uh, it's, uh, uh, if you like people as I do, it's the hardest thing is being locked away in a room by yourself. Uh, also being locked away in a room by yourself if you suffer from self-doubt, which I do. Uh, I have the only way I can write a novel is to write the first page 10, 20, 30 times, polish it till I can't polish it any further. Then I conf I'm confident. Then I get to page two, the self-doubt reemerges, and I'm not confident anymore. So I rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. I inch my way through the novel that way. And then at the end of each chapter, I go back and pencil up one more time. I'm so used to that's what I have to do that I have learned to tell myself most of the time, yes, it's probably terrible, but keep going. It wasn't terrible a couple of other times. Or what I more often have told myself is sometimes you finish a book and you go, oh, you know what it tore out of you. You know how much you doubted that it was worth. You send it off and it gets this explosively positive reaction. And I can remember a book called From the Corner of His Eye that we got a hundred and some reviews, and I think there was only one negative. And that was a book that I finished it. I thought, this is so different. And so, and I, it's so much to have bitten off. I don't know that I chewed it up properly. And I agonized on that book. And yet when it hit the street, it became number one here for five weeks. It was very well received critically. And yet the very next time it's, the same self-doubt. So that's what's so hard about it. You, you sort of, especially if you come out of a place, family, where I was the only one in the, either side of the family to go to college. Uh, and then I never thought I got that much out of college. I played a lot of chemicals. Uh, and then you sort of say, what am I doing here? I don't belong here as a writer. That is often a big problem in the beginning. And so there's self-doubt that rises out of that, but you just, it makes it very hard to write, and yet I would do nothing else uh, because when it works, when you have those scenes within a novel you're struggling with that you do know the work and you go immediately, oh, I love this. That alone makes it worthwhile or that magical thing that happens. I don't write with outlines. I start with character and premise and just let it go. And if the characters come alive, if I truly given them free will. They take the story places I don't see coming. And when you get to those moments where something happens, you go, wait, 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 I can't do that. That'll mess up this entire novel. And I have learned, no, 
listen to the characters. And when you do, the novel becomes better. That is mystical. And that is something that, as hard as the work is, really makes it well worth doing. It's, it's exhilarating, those moments when they happen. Divine visitation of sorts, isn't it? Being open to something in the universe that's sort of within you and outside you. Um, on the subject of visitors, here is a segue. I noticed that we had a, a visitor earlier, just behind you. That's very <laughs> pleased to see. I was thinking about how, you know, in some novels, cats and dogs especially, you know, become beloved characters in their own right. So are there any pets in novels that you felt especially fond of? Well, I've written a lot myself. <laughs> uh, watchers will probably always remain my most popular thing I've written. Uh, simply because of that golden retriever part of it. And, uh, uh, and I found myself writing about dogs, uh, even when I say to myself, okay, I'm going to get some letters saying, could you just write a novel without a dog in it? Uh, and I've written a lot of novels that have dogs in them, but I've written so many with dogs that uh, some people say, I'm a cat person, I don't want another dog. Books about dogs, well, I love Jackie Young, London writes. Uh, a Call of the Wild, of course, uh, and I love Old Yeller, when I got it, although terrible in. Uh, I will not allow my dog to have that book read to her. Um, it's too traumatic at the end. But I, I, yes, of course, I, I, you know, I'm a softy in many ways. Uh, and uh, if something's particularly moving, uh, a novel can wreck me. Um, I, at the end of Claire and the Sun, uh, I don't want to give anything away to anybody who's read it, but the way that ends, you just go, oh my God, it's so sad. And, and in a good way, though, being moved is not a bad thing. It's, it's what we should try to, uh, as writers, try to reach for, is to reach people, not just intellectually, you know, not just to give them thrills, but to, to reach them emotionally if the story calls for. I think this maybe comes back to what you're saying about your experiences as a young reader and needing something that you couldn't find in your family that books gave you. And I think as well that one of the really magical and almost ineffable things a good book can do is it does give you a safe space to feel pain and to be touched and moved and overwhelmed and to have all of those emotions kind of, it's a, a sort of bloodletting, I suppose. You know it's a story and you know the story can take it and contain it and there have been tears before yours. But it is a, a release that I think sometimes makes us too vulnerable in real life that we can have when we lose ourselves to a story. Yeah, I, I think uh, people, uh, well, some people tend to uh, lock themselves away from emotion in public situations because it's not so acceptable yet. And uh, but when you're sitting alone reading a book or even with your spouse, uh, then it doesn't really matter. Uh, and you can let yourself go if the story commands it. Uh, and uh, and it, it's one of the great things fiction can do. Uh, it's simply the other side of making you laugh out loud uh, and giving you a sense of joy. Uh, if it gives you a great sense of tragedy, uh, that's the other side of human existence. Uh, and uh, you're getting, uh, getting a well-rounded experience out of the story, if it, uh, especially if it can make you do both. But in either case, to be moved emotionally, to have a sense of joy in a novel uh, that sustains you throughout the reading or uh, largely, or, or to even have a sense of tragedy that moves you 
that that's going to uh, it's going to make you a better person. I agree. Now I understand that you've been incredibly busy writing. Um, I was wondering about it sounds like your wife is as avid a reader as you are and if there's anything that she has been reading that you were really excited about getting to as soon as you are able to clear some time in your day with this move we've just gone through uh last year uh, we're still not unpacked five months in the house in fact there's still construction work going on in the house so that combined and when we moved in we having a library in the house and uh, it just got finished so my employees and assistants are putting the books up so we've had 10,000 or 20,000 books in boxes we can't get to them uh, and our time is eaten up so right now we have been uh, not reading much uh, and we're eager to get back to it are you in your library now I can see beautiful bookshelves behind you and gorgeous editions Actually, this is uh, my assistant Linda's office. These are uh, basically the classics um, in this room. And then there's a library downstairs that I thought would hold all of my collection and pretty much does, but I thought it would hold my collection plus copies of books I've written. And I discovered much to my dismay when I moved in, I totally miscalculated. Math is not my strong point. And I'm having to build another room then because I have over 8,000 editions of my own work. And, uh, and I like to have them out there on shelves where I can see them simply because on one of those days where it's going very badly, and you've been in the office six hours and you've gotten one sentence written, you can step into that room where all those editions are and say, look, it did work before. It will probably work again. Get back to the key. Are there any books that you would recommend as sort of as contemporary classics or if I don't know who's in charge of you know what isn't isn't a classic but if someone were to say please pick a book that you need um, other than your own wonderful books that, that a book that needs to be in the canon given the tiny 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 amount of literature that does endure what book of the last maybe 50 years do you really want future readers to keep reading and keep meeting? I'll probably regret whatever I say because 10 minutes later, I'll think none of there were six others I should have said. I mean, you don't have to pick one if you want to pick, you know, any number. <laughs> there are books that it took me quite a while uh, to admire. Uh, the Great Gatsby is, uh, I don't know if you call that contemporary. I mean, it's the last century, so I guess it's not contemporary. Um, I think you've stumped me. I, I'm going to have to think about that. Gatsby is, I think, one of the the first books, maybe, that feels quite modern, but does present you with entirely unlikable people. I would back up and say, in the strangest way, at least in my reading of it, uh, I do end up terribly sympathetic for Gatsby. Uh, not the most admirable person but somebody who yearns for something and doesn't understand is never, ever going to be accepted. That element, when you get to the end of the book, is, uh, is pretty, uh, now that I'm thinking of it, it's nowhere near the same thing. As the, but if you go back to Tale of Two Cities, I can't think of the character's name, but it's the alcoholic attorney uh, who sacrifices his life in the guillotine. In, in, in the place of 
the other man who is going away with the woman he turning loves. That sacrifice uh, is not different from what happens with Gatsby, except Gatsby does not make the choice openly. Uh, it's just what is done to him. And Dickens' uh, characters are not despicable uh, uh, in any sense. So I'm rambling now, but it's interesting. You started me thinking, I started to see this connection a little bit in this case. I think you've hit on something there, talking about what the human condition is. And maybe all books, all the, all the books that I love, I think, are about yearning some degree about people not just going on a journey to try to get what they want but knowing they will never fully have what they want that what they want will never satisfy them in the way they think it does and whether they make peace with that or not it's true and uh, and yearning is uh, it's not solely the same thing but it, it has a lot in connection with hope and uh, and one thing I get from readers uh, in the mail I get is probably the biggest comment is these books give me hope, no matter how dark they are, uh, how dark the storyline might get. Uh, and that is true because I'm basically an optimist uh, about humanity. Uh, I know just how awful a lot of people are uh, and how bad people can get with one another. I understand the degree of violence there can be. And nevertheless, I think we muddle through it. And there is a reason to have hope. Uh, I would be a fool not to be an optimist. Having grown up in the household I did with a violent alcoholic father, never knowing whether we have the roof of our heads for And look where I am now. Uh, so life offers you opportunity. And the best thing you can do is look for it and seize it. And so, yearning for something uh, is uh, hoping, it, uh, and hope is never always fulfilled. In fact, most often not, but that doesn't mean we don't go on hoping. Uh, yearning, we, uh, the word above yearning, I think, is hope, and above, the word above hope is faith. Uh, faith being, you're sure that everything is going to turn out all right. And to some degree, I feel that same way. Uh, and that, kind of quality in fiction. One thing, you've hit upon something now I could get on hobby course about. One thing that I dislike about so many contemporary movies and novels is we've been for several decades now in an almost apocalyptic state of mind constantly. And it seems to infect our fiction. There's a lot of hopelessness in our fiction. And I don't think that leads anywhere. I think if if you write a novel saying humanity sucks, uh, just to be blunt, humanity is garbage and life is hopeless, and then fine, you have said what you believe. Now, why are you ever going to write a second novel? Because you have nothing more to say than you. And so I don't feel that way. I think there's so much that's fascinating about humanity, our condition, and our prospects to write about that you don't have to go that way. And if you do go that way, it's a bit in. And I see so much of that, that I sort of just, when I sat down to write, I'm absolutely compelled not to go that way simply because there's too many people who already do. I want to believe that, you know, life will imitate art, that anyone who creates anything, there's an opportunity to, to write a world that you want to be in and you want people to join you in. And I think that 
I think the writers who write hope, I think that's a great sense of responsibility there. And I think that's a really beautiful and uplifting note to end on. I think now I can say um, conclusively, it has been an honor. It really has. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Daisy. I enjoyed it. That was fun. Huge thanks to Dean for joining us. The Other Emily is published by Thomas and Mercer and it's out now. You won't be able to put it down or turn the lights off. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Your Book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at YBooked. Huge thanks to everyone who's been leaving five-star reviews. It really helps us to bring new listeners to the podcast. If you've got a book-loving pal, why not send them your favourite episode? You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Jean at acast.com slash booked and check out his selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. Finally, I leave you with this from Laurie Colwyn. It's bad luck to face a pot of boiling water on your wedding night with no clothes on. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.